going to pick up this morning and just look at one section of what we kind of covered in um, a sweeping move last week. So if you'd open your Bible to John chapter 18, I'm going to be reading verses 33 to 38. There should be an outline in your bulletin. There are printed messages at both exits, and if you didn't get a bulletin or a printed message, uh, feel free to grab one now. And all of the printed messages for the past 23 years are on the church website as well, where you can access them. Jesus is before Pilate on trial because the Jews, Jewish leaders have brought him there. And so in verse 33, Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Are you saying this on your own initiative, or did others tell you about me? Pilate answered, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again and said to the, uh, to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him. In 2007, John MacArthur wrote a very important book, The Truth Wars, or Truth War, and he began in this way. He said, who would have thought that people claiming to be Christians, even pastors, would attack the very notion of truth? But they are. And then after mentioning some specific examples, MacArthur continued, the idea that the Christian message should be kept pliable and ambiguous, that's what these leaders are arguing for, seems especially attractive to young people who are in tune with the culture and in love with the spirit of the age and can't stand to have authoritative biblical truth applied with precision as a corrective to worldly lifestyles, unholy minds, and ungodly behavior. And the poison of this perspective is being increasingly injected into the evangelical body. He goes on and shows how God and truth are inseparable. You'll remember that Satan, in his original ploy with Eve, gave her a lie, has God said. You, you won't surely die. And of course, ever since then, uh, he has undermined God's truthful word. And yet, um, at the same time, Truth is inextricably bound up with God uh, and also with his son, Jesus. Jesus not only speaks the truth, as he says here in our text, but as we saw 
in John 14, 6, Jesus is the truth. And um, one characteristic of those who incur God's judgment, according to 2 Thessalonians 2.10, is they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. And then two verses later, Paul says that all will be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. And so the point is, if we love God and we love Christ and God and Christ are truth, then we must love the truth and defend it when it's under attack. Now, in this account of Jesus in, um, on trial before Pilate, John brings out two very important truths about our Savior. First of all, he is the king, specifically king of the Jews, but also he is um, the king of all people by extension because, as he mentions, his kingdom is spiritual. And then secondly, John underscores the Lord's emphasis on truth. Jesus tells Pilate in verse 37, For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And then, of course, Pilate scoffs, what is truth, and turns away. But bringing those two points together, we can say that Jesus is the king of truth, and that everyone who is of the truth then hears his voice. So the first point is simply that Jesus is the king of a spiritual kingdom that is founded on spiritual truth. Now, when Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews, in, in the Greek text, the you is emphatic. And so it's probably an incredulous question. In other words, uh, you? <laughs> You're the king of the Jews? You know, as he's rolling his eyes going, give me a break, because um, Jesus did not look the part. Uh, so Pilate, if his question had been sincere, it would have been on the right track because essential to knowing Jesus is knowing who he is and the fact that he is King of kings and Lord of lords. And so the most important question any person can answer is, who is Jesus Christ? If Christ is who he claimed to be, then everything follows. We better yield our lives to him. On the other hand, if Christ is not who he claimed to be, then let's stop playing games and not be Christians. Let's go into the world. Now, Jesus could not answer Pilate's question, are you the king of the Jews, without further clarification. If Pilate meant, uh, are you the political king of the Jews who's trying to raise uh, a rebellion against Roman authority, then the answer to the question clearly is, no, Jesus was not about that. Um, on the other hand, uh, if Jesus, I mean, if Pilate's question meant, are you the messianic king, uh, the one who has been promised in the Old Testament? Uh, the answer is yes, but not in the way that most of the Jews envisioned that king. Um, he had not come in his first coming to set up that kind of kingdom. And so Jesus' um, question in response to Pilate in verse 34, he says, Are you saying this on your own initiative, 
or did others tell you about me, is basically asking, Pilate, have you investigated my messianic claims? Have you read the scriptures and you're asking me about my true identity? Or are you just acting on the hearsay of the Jewish leaders who have brought accusation, is the gist of the question. And then Pilate gives this contemptuous reply in verse 35, I'm not a Jew, am I? In other words, I want nothing to do with the Jews. He says, your own nation and your chief priest delivered me up to you. What have you done? And so he's assuming there must be some sort of fire where there's smoke. They've accused you, what's going on? But he doesn't understand what is happening. Now, Jesus doesn't reply to Pilate's question, what have you done? Uh, Instead, he elaborates on the nature of his kingdom. And two things we can learn about his reply. First of all, as the king over the spiritual realm, Jesus is the rightful sovereign over all rule and authority. In the Synoptic Gospels, as you know, there's a great emphasis on the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Um, But in John, there are only two places where you read about the kingdom of God. John 3, where Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and says, you can't enter the kingdom if you aren't born again. And right here, there was also a passing reference in John 6 where the people wanted to make Jesus king after he multiplied the loaves and fishes. But other than that, this is it. Uh, So notice verses 36 and 37 again. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this world or realm. Therefore, Pilate said to him, so, You are a king. Jesus answered, You say correctly that I'm a king. For this I've been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Now, when Jesus says, You say correctly that I'm a king, literally in Greek, it's you say that I am a king, but um, Dr. Carson, D.A. Carson, says that expression is unambiguously affirmative. So Pilate knew, yeah, he is a king, but um, Jesus then stipulates the kind of king he is. Now, of course, Pilate wasn't looking for a theological answer to the question, so you're a king. He's just trying to get to the bottom of this accusation that the Jews had brought and trying to find out who is this guy, what has he done, and get the case resolved. And um, so Jesus plainly lets Pilate know, politically, I am not a king. I'm not the kind of king that's going to threaten Rome. If I were, Jesus said, you'd see my soldiers out there. And anyone could testify who had been in the garden when Jesus was arrested that uh, he had even rebuked one of his followers, Peter, who had drawn the sword and told him to put it away. Um, And so Pilate got the message, as we see in verse 38, when he goes out and tells the Jews, I find no guilt in him. Uh, He's not a threat to Roman political rule. At the same time, though, Jesus makes it clear he is a king. He's just not the kind that Pilate might envision. Uh, 
And Jesus' kingdom, he makes clear, is not of this world. It's a spiritual kingdom. Now, the kings of this world, earthly rulers, inevitably rule by coercion. uh, And their rule is geographical. They rule over a certain geographic territory. And often, they try and extend that territory by conquering other kings and trying to take over and so on. They force their citizens to pay taxes so they can live in a comfortable palace and so that they can then continue their programs and uh, expand their military might. Jesus, though, his kingdom is different. He says it's not of this world. It's not of this realm. Uh, He explained that to his disciples back in Matthew 20, verses 25 to 28, where he said, You know the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And so in his first coming, Jesus did not come to rule in the sense of uh, military might or that. He came to bring a spiritual kingdom among all who would, um, whom he would ransom from their sins. He came to offer salvation to all who would freely submit to him as Savior and Lord. As we know, though, in his second coming, it's going to be a bit different. Um, Daniel 7, 13, and 14 describes it this way, and Jesus, by the way, alluded to this scripture when he was testifying before Caiaphas, as the other gospels show. Daniel sees Jesus. He says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And then the Apostle John in Revelation 19, verses 11 to 16, pictured it like this. John said, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful, and true. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on, that, on him which no one knows except he himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God, as we saw in John 1 1. And the armies which are in heaven clothed with, are clothed in fine linen, white and clean. We're following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword so that he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So that's our Lord in his second coming. And so here's Pilate, and he's looking at this Galilean common man, a Jew, 
who's already been hit in the face and mocked and spit upon. He's not wearing expensive clothing like a king. He doesn't have flashy rings and jewelry and all of that sort of thing. He's just a common man. And yet he is the king of kings and he is the Lord of lords. And we know from scripture he is presently at his father's right hand awaiting the day when all of his enemies will be made a footstool for his feet. And someday Pilate and Caiaphas and Caesar and every other person who's ever lived will bow before Jesus when he comes in his glory with the holy angels, and they will proclaim he is Lord of all before he judges them for their works. And so the clear application for all of us is, right now there's a window of time. Make sure that Jesus is your Lord, that you have bowed before him and acknowledge him as Lord and Savior. The second truth here in Jesus' reply to Pilate is that his spiritual kingdom then is founded on truth, on spiritual truth. Verse 37, Jesus again says, You say correctly, I am a king. For this I've been born and for this I've come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Um, interestingly, that's the only reference in the Gospel of John to Jesus' birth. Um, the other Gospels give more account of that, of course. Uh, as far as his coming into this world, that's a frequent theme in John. His birth emphasizes his humanity. He was born of the Virgin Mary. His coming into this world emphasizes his preexistence and his deity. And Jesus indicates that he has been born and come into the world to be a king, but that he advances his kingdom in a rather different way. Rather than military might in his first coming, his kingdom is advanced by bearing witness to the truth. In our day, we are witnessing the outworking of the prophet Muhammad's plan of advancing his kingdom. Ever since it was founded, Islam has advanced at the power of the sword. They come in, hold a sword to your throat and say, do you want to become a Muslim? And if you say yes, fine. If you say no, off with your head. And that's the way that kingdom has advanced. What a contrast to the kingdom of Christ that advances with the peace-giving message of the gospel and the truth of Christ And his love is seen at the cross. Now, Jesus uh, and his claim here that he came to bear witness of the truth flies in the face of the prevalent postmodern philosophy of our day. And even though some people couldn't articulate the name of it, if you go out on the street, the average person has been influenced by and believes in postmodernism. And That is, you cannot know, or it may not even exist, objective truth, especially in the spiritual realm. It's all subjective. Uh, It's not knowable. But Jesus here shows it is absolute, it is objective, it is knowable. Um, And it's true whether you feel it or not. That's the way it goes today. I just don't feel this. This truth is true whether you feel it or not. 
Uh, this truth is true whether you like it or not. This truth is true whether you believe it or not. Uh, spiritual truth is not determined by pragmatism. That is, does it work? There are a lot of worldly philosophies that, quote, work in terms of improving a person's success in business or improving a person's relationships, but they are not spiritually true in light of eternity because they don't bring people into submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Uh, Spiritual truth applies to all people in all cultures at all times because it comes to us from God. It is revealed to us through Jesus and the apostles. It all points to Jesus Christ, and it all centers on the central message of the whole Bible, and that is the gospel of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus, his death and resurrection. And that gospel, of course, transforms our hearts and brings us under the lordship of Jesus so we won't face his judgment on the last day. Now, it's important to affirm that spiritual truth is inextricably bound up with the God who is the living and true God. Um, Pilate asks here, scoffingly, what is truth? And uh, in that book I mentioned, John MacArthur gives this helpful definition of truth drawn from Scripture. He says, truth is that which is consistent with the mind, will, character, glory, and being of God. Even more to the point, he says, truth is the self-expression of God. Therefore, God is the author, source, determiner, governor, arbiter, ultimate standard, and final judge of all truth. And then a few pages later, he adds, every idea we have, every relationship we cultivate, every belief we cherish, every fact we know, every argument we make, every conversation we engage in, and every thought we think presupposes that there is such a thing as truth. The Bible calls God the God of truth. Paul says in Titus 1 that God cannot lie. It is impossible for God to lie. Uh, Since God is the only eternal being who created all that exists, and since God is spirit, we cannot know God by human philosophy or speculation. We can only know God as he has chosen to reveal himself to us, and that revelation centers in the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, in John 1.14, we saw that Jesus, whom John calls the Word, he says, uh, the Word, who is God, is full of grace and truth. And so God the Father is truth. He's the God of truth. Jesus is full of truth. And furthermore, Jesus said he would send the Holy Spirit, whom he called the Spirit of Truth, who would guide his followers into all the truth by disclosing the things of Christ to us. And so each person of the triune God is characterized by truth. And since we are to glorify God by being conformed to the image of Christ, it is essential that as Christians we grow to be truthful people that we are truthful in all of our ways. Uh, We are to practice the truth, John 3.21 says. Uh, We are to be sanctified by the the word, which is the truth, according to 
John 17, 17. We are to worship God in spirit and in truth, according to John 4, 24. And since Satan is a liar and the father of lies, uh, in contrast to Jesus who spoke the truth, all who believe in Jesus uh, have to be truthful both in our words and in the way we act, in our behavior. In Ephesians 4.15, Paul said we are to be speaking the truth in love. And then he added in Ephesians 4.25, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, uh, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. And so that includes speaking truth in the sense of not lying. It also includes speaking the truth of God's word, which is the standard of truth. In other words, sound doctrine. Now, the fact that there is such an identifiable thing as spiritual truth means there's also that which is absolutely false, false doctrine, spiritual error. And as I've explained, some spiritual error is relatively minor, but some is damning. It's so serious. As Paul in Galatians 1 told the Galatians, if you believe this false gospel of adding something to grace, save, saving grace and faith, then he said, let them be damned. So you have to discern where it's at, but it's instructive. In Paul's final three letters, he knew he was going to be executed. He wrote to two pastors, Timothy and Titus. And in those letters, he emphasizes over and over the need for sound doctrine. And the word sound is a Greek word. We get our word hygienic from it. And it means health-producing doctrine. Doctrine that will make God's people healthy, spiritually, and strong. And um, he says in those letters in 1 Timothy 3.15 that the church is the pillar and support of the truth. In Jude... Jude 3 exhorts, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. He's talking about the body of sound truth centered on the gospel that he, uh, it's under fire. He goes on, talks about false teachers. So does 2 Peter, so does 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. They all warn about false teachers that the enemy was infiltrating the early church with way back then. And I guarantee you, he has not let up. It continues to this day. I hear about things and I go, what? You know, uh, people are believing that, teaching that, and it's true. Now, the minute you say there is something that is absolutely true, that implies there's other things that are absolutely false that are a lie. But you know what happens when you say that? You get accused of being a narrow-minded bigot. You're intolerant. That's the chief sin of our day. But I was interested to read Charles Spurgeon over a century ago, and uh, it was a sermon on this text. And he said back in his day, he said, you'll get three cheers if you go out in the world and tell people you're an agnostic. And I'm sure he was, uh, got a laugh when he said, that means you don't know anything and you don't believe anything. 
And he said, that people will go, yeah, right on. You don't know anything. You don't believe anything. And then Spurgeon went on and he said um, in his day, and this is certainly true in our day, you'll hear others say, well, it doesn't matter what you believe, just so you're sincere in your belief. And Spurgeon said, that's like saying you can drink acid and it won't harm you, or that you can go without food and you won't starve to death. Uh, in other words, there are certain things that are true and they have consequences. And sound doctrine is that way. And then Spurgeon, again, made this comment. He said, our blessed Savior is honestly intolerant. <laughs> he is honestly intolerant. Now, in our text, there are two responses to the truth uh, that Jesus proclaimed. You have Pilate scoffing, and then you have those whom Jesus mentions who are of the truth, and they hear Jesus' voice. So, first of all, there are those who are not of the truth, and they scoff at the very notion that there is truth in the spiritual realm. So when Pilate says, what is truth, I think he said it with a cynical sneer, and that's supported by the fact he didn't stick around for an answer. He says, what is truth? And he turns and walks out the door. Um, He was scoffing. Uh, Jesus, I think, when he said in verse 37, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice, I believe that is an implicit invitation to Pilate. He's saying, Pilate, will you hear my voice? Will you hear the things I speak about God? Uh, Because I speak the truth. And Pilate, sadly, turns and walks away. So we see that it was really Pilate and not Jesus who was on trial. And you know what? That's true every time the truth about Jesus is proclaimed. And what that means is, this morning, maybe you walked in not thinking you were on trial, but you are. Because I've been presenting to you the truth about Jesus. And the good news he comes to bring, that all who believe in him have eternal life as his free gift. But all who walk away... For whatever reason, maybe you're not scoffing, maybe you just go, well, that's nice for them. But all who walk away will be under his judgment. And so don't just hear about Jesus and walk out the door unchanged. You have to make a decision. Will you believe or will you walk away? You know, I don't think Pilate gave a whole lot of thought to his decision to scoff and walk away. I really don't. And yet, it was a spiritually fatal decision. It changed everything for Pilate. Here he is at a moment of decision. Jesus says, if, if you're of the truth, you'll hear my voice. Will you hear? He says, what is truth? And walks away. I think Pilate was probably thinking, I need to get this silly case resolved so I can go have breakfast and get on with my day. It's probably what he was thinking. You know, he didn't think... This is my eternal destiny right here. Here's the moment of decision. Will I decide for Christ or will I not? He just shrugged it off. And the same thing again. You know, you might be at home thinking, shall I go to church today or shall I just stay home and read the paper? Nah, I think I'll just veg out and read the paper. That could be a hinged decision. You might hear the gospel at church and be saved. 
you stay home, you won't hear the gospel in the paper, I guarantee you. You know? Or you're driving along in the car and some guy comes on preaching the gospel and you go, ah, and you hit the button for your favorite music station. Fatal decision if you're not a believer in Christ. Because the gospel is being presented, it's being offered freely to you. How do you respond? How do you respond? It's interesting, in 1 Timothy 6.13, Paul said that Jesus testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate. And so Pilate's rejection of the gospel wasn't because there was something defective in the way it was presented to him. None other than Jesus Christ made a good confession to Pilate, and yet Pilate scoffed and walked away. And you have to ask the question, well, why do people do that? Because sometimes I presented the gospel as clearly as I could, and people just go, oh, it's nice for you, bye. Why do they do that? Well, the overarching reason, of course, is sin. And the main sin, I think, that keeps people from the gospel is pride. People think they know more than God, and they can sit in judgment on the Bible. That's the view of every scoffer. Well, I believe in evolution. (laughs) I'm so smart. I'm smarter than the Bible. You know, that's pride. They don't let the Bible sit in judgment on them. They sit in judgment on the Bible. They don't let the Bible confront their sin. They think they're good enough to get into heaven. You know, I got my good works. It'll be okay with me. And so they reject the truth of the Bible that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And pride keeps them from saying, you know, I don't know God. Oh, God, would you reveal yourself to me? You see, to come to Christ, you have to humble your pride and say, I don't know, but Christ does. And yes, I am a sinner, and I need a Savior. It's pride. Sometimes, too, people, especially as they get older, they become cynical. They become cynical of the church and cynical of Christians because They've had a bad experience with Christians. Maybe a Christian ripped them off financially. And uh, so they think, oh, man, those Christians, they're a bunch of hypocrites. Or, you know, maybe they heard some preacher get up and, oh, he was preaching holiness and all of that. And then it comes out, he's secretly engaged in all kinds of sexual sins. And so the cynic says, eh, there's no reality there. That whole thing is a a crock. They're just a bunch of hypocrites, and I'd rather just not even associate with those people. And besides, they're so arrogant and narrow-minded to claim to have the truth. I think another reason people scoff at Jesus is laziness. Because, let's be honest, it takes work to study the Bible and to understand who Christ is and what the gospel is. It's simple on one level, but you can spend your lifetime studying it. And laziness goes along with resistance to change. Change is always hard, isn't it? Especially the older we get. And so, you know, well, it's just easier to love my sin and uh, truth makes people uncomfortable. And so like Pilate, they just scoff that there's anything such as truth and they go on in their sin and sadly face God's judgment. By God's power, though, some do respond, and that's where I want to look finally, that everyone who is of the truth hears Jesus' voice. When Jesus says those who are of the truth, it suggests 
origin, origin. Back in John 3, when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, he said in verses 6 and 7, that which is born, notice the phrase, of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. And so those who have been spiritually reborn by the spirit of truth are who Jesus is referring to, <clears throat> excuse me, when he says in verse 37, those who are of the truth hear his voice. And so the crucial question for every person to answer is, am I of the truth? Have I experienced a spiritual new birth through the Holy Spirit? And if you're wondering, well, how can I know? Well, Jesus tells you here how you can know. If you're of the truth, you hear his voice. You hear his voice. Um, Jesus often cried out when he was teaching. It's in Matthew eleven fifteen. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And uh, you could have looked around the crowd and gone, well, everybody's got ears, you know. What's he talking about? Well, he's talking about more than just hearing the, the noise. He is talking about responding to his teaching, pondering what he's saying, applying it to their hearts and lives. And hearing Jesus in this sense not, doesn't just mean, yeah, I heard what he said. It means you apply it. You, you obey Jesus in his commandments. And so uh, the fact that spiritual truth is both knowable and it's objective, as I've said, means it has to be studied. Uh, you have to learn, what does this mean? And you compare Scripture with Scripture. But the point I'm making is, if you're born again, you do that sort of thing. You, you desire to know God's Word better so that you can change not just your knowledge, but your heart. You apply it on the heart level. Uh, the Bible talks about God's truth being like a precious metal or a treasure that's hidden. And you've got to seek it out. And that takes some hard work. Dig it out. But if you're of the truth, you're going to be a truth seeker. A person who all of your life, you're on a quest. I want to know the truth as revealed in the word of God. Not just to know it headwise, but to apply it in my heart. Many years ago on a TV talk show, the Archbishop of Canterbury was talking with the actress Jane Fonda. And the Archbishop said, um, Jesus is the Son of God, you know. And Fonda's reply was, maybe he is for you, but he's not for me. And the Archbishop wisely answered, well, either he is or he isn't. <laughs> In other words, the archbishop was acting on the basis of objective, knowable reality or truth. Jane Fonda was into the postmodernism. Well, it's good for you, but not for me. And even though most Americans and even a large percentage of evangelical Christians in America reject the idea of absolute truth in the spiritual realm, that doesn't undermine the fact Jesus is the truth. And Jesus spoke the truth. And we must come to know the truth as it is in Jesus. And furthermore, Jesus is the king. And so if you're of the truth, you'll hear Jesus' voice. 
and you'll submit to Jesus as your personal king. Let's pray. Father, we come before you knowing that you're the God who spoke the universe into existence and you know every single heart here. You know every thought, every heart here has had as I've been speaking. And Lord, we know that someday you will judge the thoughts and intentions of our heart by your word of truth. And we know that you've provided the Savior to deliver us from the judgment we all deserve, the Lord Jesus Christ. That he bore our sins on the cross, that he was raised from the dead, victorious over sin and death, and that now every person who believes in him receives eternal life as a free gift. And I pray, Lord, if any are here who have never done that, they would not shrug it off or scoff at it, that they would even now yield their heart and life to Jesus and believe in him as the way, the truth, and the life and come into your presence through his shed blood. We'll give you the thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.